We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh of New Bloom. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Ross Feingold, a regular ICRT commentator. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the US passing of a defence bill that includes key Taiwan security provisions only days after a report claimed that Washington would not send troops to defend Taiwan in the event of conflict with China. US airlines altering their designation of Taiwan on their websites. Education minister moves to settle the NTU presidential dispute as the president-elect himself vowed not to be knocked down by politics. Some latest election news or varied later election news in fact and some rather disturbing news about new job seekers interviews and we'll begin though with the east asian olympic committee on tuesday of this week revoking tai jong's rights to host the 2019 east asian youth games now the government went immediately on the offensive accusing china of pressuring the committee to cancel the games and describing beijing's actions as being irrational politically motivated and barbaric now the decision by the eaoc was made during a meeting in beijing reportedly called for by chinese representatives to the sporting body now, they cited the ongoing campaign here in Taiwan to hold a referendum on whether to participate in the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games as Taiwan rather than under the title of Chinese Taipei as the reason for the ruling and the reason the Games were ripped from Taijong's hands. Now, the sports administration here says it's planning to seek talks in an attempt to overturn the decision. Taijong Mayor Lin Jialong says that his office will soon submit a petition to the East Asian Olympic Committee over its decision to cancel on the games. Taichung City has in fact spent over 670 million NT on preparations for the event and it says the EAOC's executive board made regular inspections and also provided support for the event and compensation is now being talked about. However, the Chinese Taipei Olympic Committee says it's reviewed the EAOC charter and believes that the Taichung City government will be unable to seek any reimbursement for the millions it's spent on preparations. And lawmakers from across party lines or most lawmakers and most people from across party lines should we say are now urging the government to file a protest with the international olympic committee asking for the east asian youth games to go ahead in taijong as planned so brian what do you what did you make of all this shenanigans um, it is surprising because i believe that taijong has had the hosting rights for the games for four years I think China saw the events that took place with the university in, in Taipei and decided that they wanted to ramp up pressure with regards to sporting events that take place in Taiwan, uh, particularly because it is used as a way to try and get a foothold into the international world, to host a sporting event in Taiwan and hopefully draw some attention to Taiwan in that way and uh, build towards greater participation in international bodies. While at the same time, as with the university, um, that these were youth-oriented events that are not the most prominent sporting events in the world um, allows for Taiwan to have the right to host these games, that it's not high-proof enough that China will react. Unfortunately, in this case, China has reacted. And now the question is how the government will respond and how they will leverage on that to uh, try and accomplish something, whether that is filing protest or just raising awareness of international bullying by China. So you think possibly Beijing was not jealous, jealous might be a too big a word, <laughs> but was like a bit angry that the university had was such a success? I don't think... Uh, I think uh, maybe not angry that it was such a success, but it's decided that no more such events should take place in Taiwan. Um, I think also Beijing ramping up pressure 
does put pressure on Taiwan with regards to other sporting events. Uh, for example, just one day after that announcement, the 2018 Gay Games in Paris announced that Taiwan would not be able to participate under the name Taiwan for the first time, but under Taipei. Ross? I have a bit of a different perspective than you guys. Uh, yeah, the, we know the University Games was successful from a process perspective. So after that uh, opening night uh, protest that, that got a bit messy outside the venue, uh, the rest of the event was, was generally considered a success, again, from a process perspective. The, the venues uh, didn't have any problems. People got a good impression of Taiwan. I, I don't think that it got much international attention uh, for Taiwan over a medium, and certainly now that it's a year later over the long term. I, I don't think that was China's main driver in, in taking these youth games away from Taichung. I think it, it might very well be what you talked about, Gavin, which is this referendum um, proposing to change the name, which ultimately the IOC would, would reject anyway. Uh, but, but the fact that it's getting a little bit more media attention um, and is being talked about both domestically as well as internationally, uh, that could simply be the main driver. And it's not a concern about Taiwan getting too much attention as a host for what Brian indicated uh, accurately are uh, events that don't get much attention anyway. It really could be this name issue. And uh, it, it, it was easy for China to do this because this referendum had to do with the Olympics. And this event is in Taichung was also uh, within the structure of the International Olympic Movement, uh, you know, as far as the regional body and the, North, the East Asian body that sanctioned it. So it, it just became too easy for China to look at this event and say, well, if you're trying to change an agreement under which you participate in Olympic events, then you're going to face some punishment with regard to an Olympic event. It just became very easy for China to do that. What about this call for compensation? Because obviously the Taichung city government has spent nearly 700 million NT on preparations for the game, and they say, of course, there's the what's it, the CAS, the Global Sports Arbitration Council. Well, I, I think if the, if there's going to be any compensation paid, it will probably depend on the goodwill, for lack of a better word, of China. Uh, obviously, uh, for China, this would be a small amount of money. They could just write a check for some or all of all of uh, <laughs> these costs. But but that actually raises a very important point, Gavin, which is: Are we talking about seeking compensation, or are we talking about continuing to fight for? Uh, Taichung's right to host the games, because uh, earlier in the conversation, you talked about both, right? You said that the, there's an effort from, uh, whether it's the sports administration at the central government level, Taichung city government, members of the public, petition, do what they can, protest, letters, et cetera, et cetera, to re re reinstate the right to hold the games. Well, are, are we seeking to do that, or are we seeking to get compensation, or are we seeking to do both? Once your strategy starts to get so diffused like this, then it's going to become unclear to the other parties what exactly you want. So let me give you an example. If, if Taichung realizes that it cannot hold these games, then maybe you could go to a Japan, which abstained in the vote. You go to South Korea, which voted with China, North Korea, Hong Kong, and Macau, and say, okay, guys, you, know, you, you really hurt us here, but can you help us get compensation? You know, just 
be a little, you know, show, show some fairness here, get us some compensation. But you can't go to Japan and South Korea and say, help us get compensation. Oh, but we're also protesting and we want the rights to the games to be reinstated. You can't do both. I think uh, it may just be that Taiwan has another redundant stadium, similar again to Razor University Parallel, as there was all this construction on the Taipei Dome, and then it ended up not being built in time for the games at the University Aid. Uh, then maybe in Taichung we'll have similar. I wonder about that. Because what about Ross's point about it being a bit wonky that they want both, so to speak? They want compensation and they want the games to be played here. I think uh, it's a strategy to try to, again, raise awareness of uh, international bullying by China. I think when push comes to shove, the Taichung city government will probably have to choose one or the other. Which one do they want? Um, but right now, it seems probably more useful to leverage both. Um, yeah, that, that could go wrong, though, of course. Yes, it could be, uh, if uh, some of the countries involved point to this contradiction at stake. Um, so right now, yes, pointing to both, uh, maybe that will, be, that will raise awareness of it, but eventually you have to adopt one strategy or the other. Uh, perhaps just the DPP has not actually come to that crossroads yet, the current administration, that is. But of course, an interesting thing, because of course, the, the, this actually hurts regular people and not actually the DPP government per se, Ross. Well, sure, there are people who are going to be suppliers or contractors, whether it's construction or uh, all the way up to the food that would be served at the, at the games. But we do have to keep in mind the relative modest size of this event. I mean, media reports uh, and statements from the Taichung city government officials who, who were involved with planning only indicate a very modest number of athletes that were going to be attending, uh, something like 1,500. You know, that's a fraction of, of the university games, which was closer to 10,000. So uh, I don't think too many people will be hurt economically. And we have to look at another frank issue, which it, no politician is, is going to stand up and say in the, in the current environment, although they might eventually say it, which is uh, this event was going to be heavily subsidized by, by the central government and the city government. So actually the taxpayer, and since we're, we're taxpayers, we have to look out for, for the interests of taxpayers, Gavin. You know, the taxpayer is probably going to save money if this event is canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is in the in the interest uh, currently to claim that China doesn't care about Taiwanese taxpayers in the interest of the, the Thai administration and so forth. But yeah, it's a question if they'll go forward with that claim. And of course, there was the argument made by one former head of Taichung, of course, former mayor Jason Hu, who when asked his opinion about the debacle, as we'll call it for the sake of a word, well, he turned around and said, well, it's the Thai administration's fault for not adhering to the 1992 <laughs> consensus, Brian. I mean, that is, that is a classic KMT move. Um, I think, yes, the KMT will claim that. I think, uh, particularly, it, it will be very hard for the KMT to claim that they're in the face of a lot of these acts of international bullying by China, which have happened recently. Um, particularly because sometimes the KMT will also react against um, these acts themselves. They're sort of obligated to say at least something, at least to perform something. Um, and so when, when someone like Jason who says that, it, it is a contradiction with other, what uh, other members of the party are saying. Because, of course, their, their candidate in the election actually came out and took the side of, but we, we need these games. Mm -hmm. That's right. It would be a kind of bad thing for a local candidate to say, oh, well, um, you know, China's in the right here, actually. <laughs> 
Anyway, moving on, and the government this week thanked the US Congress for supporting Taiwan following finalisation of the 2019 National Defence Authorisation Act, which included provisions geared towards helping the island strengthen its defence capabilities. Now the bill directs the US Secretary of Defence to review ways to boost Taiwan's military forces, especially its reserve forces, and to report recommendations and planned actions to the Congress within one year. It includes ways to strengthen bilateral cooperation and seeks to expand US-Taiwan joint training training, military sales, security cooperation and senior level military-to-military engagements. And it also calls for a service secretary or member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to visit Taiwan in keeping with the newly passed Taiwan Travel Act. Now, the bill, of course, won't become law until it's passed both the House and Senate in the identical form and then signed by President Donald Trump. Agreement on the bill came after Foreign Minister Joseph Wu here in Taiwan, though, told CNN during an interview which aired on Monday of this week that Taiwan needs the US's continuous support in the face of China's growing military threat or it will be vulnerable to being taken over. Now, Wu's comments came after a China Times report claimed that the military's newly revised defence plan appears to show that in the event of a conflict between Taiwan and China, the United States will not send troops to the island. Now, the story went on to say that the Ministry of National Defence will instead ask the United States to provide intelligence to monitor enemy forces. Now, the MND has neither denied or confirmed the story, Ross? Well, we see the pattern of what was expected under the Trump administration when it was elected in November 2016 and then took office in January 2017, which was closer U.S.-Taiwan relations, especially in the military space. So this shouldn't surprise anyone. And, and there's a very, we knew there would be a very friendly Congress towards Taiwan. And again, the expectation was that people who were going to work in the administration would be very friendly towards Taiwan as well. And I think we're seeing that pattern work out. It's probably been a little bit slower than some people had anticipated, especially considering that first uh, April 2017 summit between Xi Jinping and Trump in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, went so well and and talk about uh, closer relations. Trump made statements about following the U.S.'s one-China policy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So whether you think this is an outgrowth of trade disputes or other tensions with China, the reality is is this pattern of actions by the Congress or the administration, none of which should surprise any of us. However, there, there's an important thing to keep in mind here. Like with any congressional resolution or legislation that is enacted into law, when it comes to these things, asking, suggesting, requiring the administration to do something with regard to any foreign policy issue, including Taiwan, the administration has the option to ignore it because Congress really cannot dictate any of these things. And so you know, we talk about a pattern of actions that uh, show a closer relationship. There's also a pattern of these kinds of things being inserted into U.S. legislation over many years where the, the administration, whether it's the State Department, Defense Department, other federal government agencies, actually don't act on it. They don't actually implement what Congress is saying. So I would expect to see continued closer military relations. It'll be incremental, and it will not be at the pace that some people in Congress would want. 
I think it's a good question because uh, particularly the biggest question itself is the Trump administration and what will happen there. Again, as was stated um, in re- Congress, traditional Republican allies of Taiwan have continued to speak up for Taiwan and uh, push for legislation in support of Taiwan. However, uh, it's really a question as, as to where the U.S.-China relation will be at any given point, depending on Donald Trump's actions and so forth. And I think that's the biggest question. Uh, for example, after the Taiwan Travel Act was passed, um, and Alex Wong of the State Department came, there were some reports that Trump was not actually so happy with that because of this being bad timing with regards to negotiation with Kim Jong-un in China and so forth. Um, and, of course, Trump needs to sign off on this. Uh, at present, relations between the U.S. and China are worsening again. I think we can see actions such as selling, a, uh, selling ships through the Taiwan Straits, which occurred last year and this year, uh, in regards to points of bad relations with China, um, so far as Taiwan does not come up in that, Taiwan can benefit from when the U.S. is in a period of tensions with China, um, whether accidentally or directly. However, again, it just I think it really will depend on the moment. Um, I think many things are unpredictable right now regarding the presidency and which direction it, it hopes to take, because there have been abrupt turnabouts in policy. And that's also been part of the consistent pattern of the Trump administration. What about- that shows the key point, which, which uh, if this media report about Ministry National Defense planning is true, is that ultimately Taiwan has to take the necessary measures to uh, safeguard its own national security without an over-reliance on the United States. And and experts like you, Gavin, uh, have been pointing that out for years. Uh, Has it happened? Sort of, maybe not to the extent that is necessary, though. And we see that even with Foreign Minister Wu's statement uh, about relying on the U.S. or, or you know, the hope that the U.S., I mean, however you want to analyze his remarks, you know, we could look at what he actually said, but the important thing is more the analysis and, and what it means about Taiwan's planning. Uh, but, but ultimately, Taiwan has to do more, substantially more, uh, substantially more investment in equipment and personnel. And, of course, boosting the defence budget, Brian, is an issue. The government, of course, has come out and said we're going to boost the defence budget, but mm-hmm. where's it going to get the money from? That's right. And so that is another issue. Um, will Taiwanese taxpayers want to foot the bill? That is a question. Um, I think sometimes, despite the fact that tensions with China are on the rise, uh, Taiwanese don't think too much about that. And so perhaps this will just be another intrusion to their lives. Of course it's they, really hard to say. They pay tax, obviously, housing for people, other issues are more important, more domestic more mm-hmm. domestic issues. that. Re- it's, it's very interesting, yeah, because I think maybe perhaps similar to in South Korea, uh, oftentimes just having a direct threat that's right next to you sometimes leads to a concern with domestic issues over this seemingly uh, ever-present threat that actually becomes gradually less and less concrete over time. Um, that's, that's a long-term thing. I think the public, part of the public gets a bit blasé about the threat, maybe, and think, you know, we, well, it's, it's there, it's been mm-hmm. there for like That's 70 right. years. I think, I think China also doesn't help to uh, so many threats that it comes off as just more just words, just not actually meaning anything and just always making threats, but not actually following up. Um, it is surprising that there is not a lot of activity paid towards when China steps up military activity. Um, I think the U.S. has also called for increased defense spending by Taiwan, and so there's the attempt to sort of keep America happy there as well. Um, There's another important reality, which is uh, not just the local election in November of this year, mm-hmm. but the, the national election for, for the president and, and the legislative UN it is not long afterwards, right? It's in January 2020, so it's 13 months after the local election. And every policy decision by the government now 
in this period and certainly after November is going to be with trying to have a successful national election in, in 2020. And, and that's perfectly reasonable. That, that's the nature of electoral politics and in democracy. But the, the important point is, you know, we see what, what the U.S. is willing to do in the U.S. defense budget. But is the Taiwan government going to propose this large spending increase to uh, be able to fully implement what the U.S. is willing to do. And given elections that are coming up, is the government going to propose a huge increase in the defense budget in January 2019 or, you know, anytime during 2019? No, because they'll need money to spend on you know, the things you indicated, Gavin, whether it's housing or, or other things that are going to help improve electoral support. That's just the reality. So I would not be optimistic about a substantial increase in, in defense spending uh, in, in the near term, given the, the needs to be re-elected. Right, and in some more gloom and doom for Taiwan this week, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is now protesting Beijing's pressing of foreign airlines to refer to the island as part of China. Now, it issued a statement the day after three American airlines decided to remove the word Taiwan from their websites, saying that Taiwan exists in the international community and won't disappear because of Beijing's bullying. Now, of course, American and Delta and United Airlines all remove references to Taiwan as a separate country from their websites, and now if you go to them, you simply see the line referring to TPE, Taoyuan International, without mentioning the country, which some would argue is a lot better than having Taiwan, China, basically. Now, the foreign ministry strongly condemned China for what it called its rude and politically motivated intervention in the operations of international companies and said that Taiwan's democracy is envied by Chinese citizens who are deprived of their own political freedom. Some might say touche to that comment, Anyway, the ministry is now urging other countries that share the same ideals as Taiwan to prevent China from meddling in the sovereignty of other independent foreign companies. So, Ross, not a surprise when this happened, of course. Well, China's been uh, demanding this for many months now, and uh, it's not something that's been done in a secretive manner by China. Letters were, were issued by China's regulator, so the aviation regulator, uh, and this has been battled in, in public among uh, the Chinese government, the U.S. government, with its now uh, often repeated Orwellian <laughs> nonsense comment. Uh, I would encourage people to stop repeating it because it runs the risk of becoming a cliche. Uh, and the airlines, as, as various airlines have implemented a decision to adhere to China's demand. So no, no, no surprise here. Uh, we don't know yet how the Chinese government will feel about the option chosen by the three, or actually I, think, I believe it's four, because Hawaii Airlines also followed the model of uh, United, Delta, and American Airlines, which is to, as you said, remove a country reference. But, but they did it also for destinations in China. So if Shanghai says uh, Shanghai Hongqiao, with no indication of China, similar to what they've done with Taipei and Taoyuan Airport. That, that, that might be a risk for China. China might not accept that, because uh, if, if there's no country designation for China, but there's country designations for other airports and destinations around the world, so New York, you know, it says New York, JFK, U.S., uh, then China's being treated differently, and, and we'll, we'll have to watch for how China reacts to that kind of solution. But... Uh, this is very similar to the era, to the uh, 
Asian Youth Games discussion, that Taiwan is going to protest. But who are they going to protest to? Uh, the comments about the operations of multinational companies, uh, multinational companies are not looking for the government of Taiwan to safeguard company interests, uh, especially when it comes to operating in China, where companies face a very difficult operating environment for a variety of reasons, some of which are on the agenda of the U.S. and its trade talks with China. Uh, but uh, Taiwan is not uh, in a position to assist with that at all. And given Chi uh, Taiwan's exclusion from international civil a aviation organizations, it's very difficult for Taiwan to protest to anyone. And then they wind up relying on the U.S. And, and as I said, we, we see Taiwan uh, repeating the Orwellian nonsense comment that the White House made about this a few months ago. Uh, I, I would expect, just like with the Asian, um, East Asian Youth Games, there's very limited options for Taiwan to undo what's been done. Uh, I'll make one more interesting point, and I'll then throw it over to Brian's analysis. But uh, why is Taiwan only targeting China for criticism? Why not the governments of the countries where these airlines are based, other than the U.S., some of which purport to be Taiwan's friend in a, in a non-formal diplomatic relations manner, uh, or those companies uh, for making that decision, especially if U.S. companies were willing to be a little bit more bold. So well, why isn't Taiwan saying to uh, Singapore Airlines and the government of Singapore, you know, Singapore, purporting to be one of the countries that is friendlier to Taiwan, uh, or to India, which Taiwan is trying to get a better relationship with. And Air India is kind of at the extreme end of, of the options that companies took because they changed the designation to Chinese Taipei, which other countries didn't do. Uh, sorry, other airlines, they, they only changed it to China. Um, well, why is the Taiwan government not directing its criticism at those governments and airlines and is instead only directing it at China? I think it's right. Um, it's more typical of the Taiwanese government to always claim that we've always been friends and so we have this historical relationship and that's why you should help us, rather than to make demands of its purported allies. Um, and I think that's the case here, too. For example, actually, the fact that the White House did make the Orwellian com uh, nonsense comment, that gives Taiwan some leverage over the U.S. in some sense, saying that, okay, you criticize it once, uh, we have this historical relationship and we're allies and so you should now try to help us out. Um, that being said, there is not a lot Taiwan can do here, and even with regards to the companies, which uh, in international companies in these different countries, which have changed their designations, there's not much that probably would happen there. I mean, would actually a democratic country take some kind of legal action against these airlines for changing their name, which is what China has threatened to do? That seems quite unlikely. Even the case of the U.S., in which uh, uh, the president has actually threatened U.S. companies sometimes, such as uh, in the case of Harley Davidson recently, by threatening to impose taxes on it. So I think that, yeah, there's not, Taiwan, there's not much Taiwan can do here except protest, and it's unfortunate. Um, I think that there, there have to be ways thought of to leverage on this for Taiwan, because... Well, well you, we've been talking about Foreign Minister Wu and his comments to CNN, and we have to remember that not long ago, the national security team of the Taiwan government, you know, led by mm, David yeah. Lee in, in an interview with the Financial Times, uh, the government, the national security team of Taiwan said we're going to take some, some actions against the airlines, and, and including uh, encouraging consumer boycott. Nothing has happened with that. So <laughs> are, are we just, we being the Taiwan government, are, are we only going to complain about China? We're not going to complain about uh, 
India and, and Air India or Singapore government and, and Singapore Airlines uh, and the, the several dozen others. Uh, are we only going to focus on China now? Are we dropping this idea of, of action against the airlines? Are we going to you know, restrict number of uh, flights they could, or slots they could get at Taoyuan Airport? Uh, are we going to encourage the consumer boycott? Are we going to pass a regulation? in Taiwan that says if you're flying to Taiwan, you have to designate us in a certain way? Uh, or, or are we dropping all of that? The, the government's going completely silent on that. I think it's quite interesting, because I think that uh, the government actually has limited ability to follow through on such threats. Such airlines, when push comes to will always pick China over Taiwan, just market interest. China's a larger market. But in saying in making such kind of, in such threats, airlines, which also want to avoid fines or other legal measures, might be encouraged to take this kind of neutral ground, which will lead them to you know, act ambiguously. For example, again, changing the designation to Taipei and not listing the country, but not actually saying Taipei, China. Um, so that might be the effect of that. But I think it is actually a sort of phantom threat. And of course, Taiwan's international airport, they're trying to revamp it and have more passengers. <laughs> so you can't pee the airlines off and expect more airlines to come here, bringing more passengers. So really a no-win situation for everybody there. Anyway, now a story that just won't go away was back in the news this week, that being the long-lasting saga of the National Taiwan University presidential election. Excuse me why I yawn here. <laughs> now, new education minister Ye Juan-rong said this week that he's met with a governor of the university's presidential selection committee to discuss the dispute and proposed ways to finally settle it. However, Ye refused to disclose whether he proposed that the Ministry of Education finally approve the appointment of Guang Zhongmin as the school's president and withdraw a decision by two former education ministers to order the school to restart the selection process. Guan also popped up this week, only he did so from Southern California. And speaking to members of the NTU Alumni Association in Los Angeles, he said that he plans to continue the fight, the education ministry's decision not to confirm his appointment, and he will not give in to political pressure. And Guan told alumni members that former NTU NTU President Chen Wei Zhou has been encouraging him to stand firm. And if all that wasn't enough to revive this story, a third party also entered the fray this week when Control UN officials said that their investigation into the matter found both the university's election process and the Ministry of Education's regulations on university presidents to be flawed. So it took a shot at both of them. And according to the government watchdog, it will now send its final report on the case to the Legislative Education and Culture Committee for discussion in the Far UN on August the 16th. So, Brian, a story that just won't go away, and it's come back again and again, and no one seems to be able to do anything about it. It seems almost that nobody has an answer for this, and I feel as though, because the story has dragged on for so long, that if this had been addressed much earlier in a much more decisive manner, then it would not have been such a big issue. Unfortunately, now the issue is here to stay, uh, particularly because... But, Brian, who do you mean should have been more... I mean, I mean, uh, just more decisive government. action by the Ministry of Education if they had just really just said, you know, okay, he's out and he's permanently out, and that's that. I'm um, sure they're in protest, but I think that the more they allowed the issue to drag on, it, the bigger it became, um, particularly when people realize there's political capital here to be gained. Well, it's correct that this is dragged on. It, it, it seems increasingly clear that the government, through three education ministers, <laughs> misunderstood or did not estimate accurately Mr. Guan's willingness to fight this all the way to the end. Uh, I, I, I don't know how that happened because 
Mr. Guan is, is a public figure. He served in the government of Myung Joe. His reputation as a scholar and his personality are well known. This is a, a guy who uh, anyone could have guessed was going to dig in and try and fight this. And uh, he's had enough institutional support over the last six months. When I say institutional, I mean not just within NTU, both among academics as well as students, but also alumni, as evidenced by his visit to, to the alumni organization in California, as well as from other universities in Taiwan. Right, We've seen uh, professors and, and deans, university presidents uh, across Taiwan who, who have taken the side of NTU in this dispute simply because they, they don't want Ministry of Education or government uh, interfering in their operations or micromanaging the operations of their universities. So it's become an issue of uh, independent decision-making for universities. Uh, so the, if the government's hope was that he would step away and give up, you know, they, the government's been proven wrong. That's just turned out to be a bad strategy. Uh, and it seems from media reports, at least, that new education minister Ye wants to offer this way out, which would be for NTU to have a new vote. And I would expect the, if that's the path, and the new vote and the, the documentation or the presentations accompanying that vote would, as if anyone doesn't know by now, uh, would have to indicate any of the potential conflicts of interest, which frankly don't exist anymore, um, you know, his board seats and who, who were the, the voting members of the, the, vo the committee who might have had a business relationship with Mr. Wan. Um, you know, the, these conflicts aren't going to exist anymore at the time they have a new vote, of course. Uh, so if we have to have to have another vote and it's going to list out all the conflicts, then you know, it, 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 it's still going to be a, a loss of face for the government because their strategy would have turned out to be incorrect. But, but there is a great risk here, which is in the aftermath of this incident, that the government will use its uh, legislative majority in the legislative end to clean up what are some obvious shortcomings here in the process. And one of the, the, the most glaring shortcomings is simply the fact that the rights and obligations of a national university, which receives a lot of it, a lot of its funding from the government versus the rights and obligations of the Ministry of Education or the government broadly in the management of the university are very unclear. So the university is not constituted uh, as a foundation. Uh, it's all very gray. And uh, we see now that people were really confused because it's just all in a gray area. What was the government's right to interfere in this matter? If you read the laws and the regulations as they literally are, are written, all NTU had to do was forward this to the Ministry of Education, say we had a vote, here's the result, and the Ministry of Education was to, supposed to put its stamp on it. Um, so it's not really supposed to be approval by the Ministry of Education. It was supposed to be more recordation. And the only uh, way for the ministry to stop the process was to say, you violated some law or regulation in, in your process. And when the ministry tried to make that argument, it wasn't a very compelling argument because it just doesn't seem like the, the um, voting process at NTU violated any laws or regulations. It's, it's, a, it's a very weak argument to say 
that they did, and that's why we're in the situation we are now. So there is this risk of, of an overreach where new laws or regulations are implemented that allow the central government greater authority to interfere in the operation of universities, and that would be an unfortunate outcome. I mean, Brian, what about the control you went? I mean, the government didn't seem to know what it was doing, and the control you went <laughs> now has had a report, we've investigated it, and you're both to blame. Yeah, that could be actually one strategy taken by the government to try and get out of this. Have the control and say there's wrongdoing on both sides, including by the Ministry of Education and by NTU. But to clear all this over, maybe we should have a new presidential election, which would be to go with the but, fact there's a new Ministry of Education. And yeah. But does this mean that Guan can run again? That's a good question. I mean, and, I mean, <laughs> and then if that happens, then that would even further complicate it. Um, again, yeah, just regards delegation of powers, it's unclear between NTU and the Ministry of Education what their relation should be. It's even further unclear what their relation, both of them, with the control rent should be. And then if there's a new set of elections, no matter under what auspices, then what are the rules of that? Um, and sometimes you do have the case of people that are out from office running again. Um, that is something that happens. And I'm sure we'll be back to this case again shortly. And I do apologise for anyone who's just had about enough of it as me. Anyway, let's move on to local election news. Now there's speculation the KMT could replace some of its candidates who aren't doing quite as well in the support polls as initially predicted. Now one of them, for example, is Apollo Chen in Taoyuan. So Ross, do you see the KMT actually replacing some of these candidates? Well, it's, it's a strategy that didn't work for the KMT in the 2016 presidential election when, within four months of the election, the presidential candidate was replaced uh, and you know, it had absolutely no, no bearing on the ultimate result of the election. If the KMT candidates are not doing well at this point, keeping in mind we're, we're almost at uh, the beginning of August, you know, it's only four months to the election, uh, it'd be very difficult for new candidates to come in now and sell themselves to the voters and, and change what it what appears to be a, a dynamic where uh, the incumbent or the DPP candidate, if it's an open seat, uh, are just more popular than, than the KMT candidates. The, I think the biggest problem for some of these candidates is a lack of a policy vision. So they're not really offering anything clear to the voters why they should, why the voters should select these people. And a second issue, and this has come up repeatedly with the KMT, it's no surprise, is they just seem somewhat stale, out of touch. You know, they don't appeal to, to younger voters. Uh, the DPP candidates in some locations suffer from that as well. They're, they're not perfect in that regard. It just seems that the KMT candidates generally, as a group, are, are worse. And we saw that with, with Apollo Chen over the last few days. This photo was released, which is supposed to be a campaign you know, photo of, of Apollo Chen with uh, party chairman Wu wearing this T-shirt, this KMT T-shirt, which has now become ubiquitous. It's almost a cliche, like Orwellian nonsense, frankly. Uh, and they're they're standing next to each other with clenched fists, uh, with their pants uh, jacked up very high, <laughs> and, and somewhat dour expressions on their face. It, it, it's just not not a good optic for appealing to voters in the 21st century, and, and that that's just fueling this discussion that the KMT candidates as, as a group have a lot of weaknesses. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, in such cases, even if such, if GameT candidates are not doing as good as expected and they don't have anybody that's new or inspiring, I think it might still be better just to leverage on who you have that is already there. Because again, changing horses this late in the game might not work out well, might not change the outcome, uh, might just look worse and come off as a sign of desperation. And he is trailing the, t- the current DPP incumbent mayor by quite a lot in the polls. Yes, yes. Um, so it's actually it is somewhat, somewhat surprising because he, he's a he's he's a known quantity. Mm-hmm. He, That's he right. He was a legislator for many years. In fact, he was a legislator with a fairly high profile. Somebody who was always in front of the cameras, uh, ready to talk about public policy issues on TV. Uh, and, and Gavin, correct me if I'm wrong, because I know you've been observing him over many years as I have. But his reputation was was okay w- w- with the public. Uh, certainly, there were a lot worse legislators uh, th- from both the DPP and KMT th- than Mr. Chen. So it, it, the assumption was he, he probably had a bit of that uh, electoral gravitas to bring to this race, and, and it's just not happening. I think that the, the KMT is a little afraid of uh, what happened last time, that a lot of established uh, party heavyweights was unexpectedly ousted. And I think that the KMT has sort of lost track of where the public is at. It's, it's very afraid of these kind of unpredictable results in which established candidates get overturned. And so without new candidates to replace them, new inspiring candidates, it's kind of at a loss at what to do. Stick with the old person, uh, even though you might still not do well and might get overturned, or just desperately search for new people, even when no clear people have emerged. But suits which in brings pub- us to an important point, <laughs> which, is, which is if the KMT does not do substantially better uh, in these local elections versus four years ago, if it doesn't take back uh, a few county executive or, or mayor seats, uh, is Mr. Wu going to be forced out of his job as party chairman? And I, I think, it, at least as of today, it's increasingly likely. Whatever the election result is, the KMT will, will have some positives they could take away. You could look at the number of uh, borough leaders, city council members across the totality of Taiwan and probably find something positive. But the, the public and, of course, the media, they're going to focus on one key metric, which is the number of county executives and mayors uh, of the major uh, municipalities. And if the KMT doesn't improve on what it did uh, four years ago, then Mr. Wu's position is going to become untenable. But if you're over a certain age, you should probably wear a suit in your publicity photo. <laughs> That's what I'm taking away from all that. Anyway, in Taipei, Mayor Kerwin Jur, of course, is running for re-election, and he decided, to, well, he took to the interweb to make money. And he launched a crowdfunding site for his re-election campaign this week, and his group set an initial target of raising 13.1 million NT. Now, well, that target was reached within nine hours of the website being put online. And apparently he's now made 300% of what he asked for. Now, the mayor has said that most of the entire cost of his re-election campaign will be covered through crowdfunding. So, Brian, you, you know a bit about <laughs> crowdfunding? Well, I wish the New Bloom crowdfunding campaign was that accessible. Unfortunately, uh, we haven't set any goals, but we haven't made millions and millions. Um, it's not surprising. Ko is still very incredibly popular among the Taiwanese public. Uh, he also does know how to connect with the people in a way. Uh, crowdfunding, for example, is not just a way of raising money, but it's a way of uh, showing that you're not part of the establishment, that you want contributions from the people and not from uh, political parties, or in my case, I mean, um, or just established companies or people that have a lot of resources in society. And it's, it's a way of connecting with people in that way. And Co has historically been very good at that. Uh, for example, calling for volunteers was also uh, a way to 
outreach. And Co also just had more volunteers than he needed. Sign up very fast. Um, and Co has just been good at social media and just throughout his campaign and last time and through his mayorship and up to now, whether through Line or Facebook or even Twitter. And of course, there were people saying, Ross, of course, that Mayor Kerr is on the out. He's never going to have any supporters. He took to the interweb and he made a loan of money. And this comes right after this very popular online video on YouTube that went viral on YouTube uh, of uh, America, uh, what he does during the day, and um, had some popular Taiwan actors. And, and uh, you know, within a few weeks, they do the crowdfunding campaign. It's very brilliant, and and uh, the public response really shows that America and the public have found a common ground. What, what I mean is you know, people supported him in 2014 because he, he was different. His manner of speaking was very frank. The, the uh, KMT candidate turned out to not be as strong as the KMT had expected. The DPP gave up and didn't run its own candidate. Then I think there was a period when, when Co was first um, settling into the job when people were, were kind of saying to us, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is our mayor, because he was very frank, and there were some incidents with foreign visitors that uh, didn't go so well, and you know, he, he went after the Taipei Dome, and there didn't seem to be a, a strong strategy. He, was, he didn't seem too keen on the university games. But I think over time, you know, Ke has, uh, I wouldn't say moderated his, his style, but he, I think he is a little more careful about doing things that would get a negative reaction from the media or the public. And I think the public has come to appreciate that, that they see somebody who is frank, so he doesn't waste words and avoid the issue the way so many politicians in Taiwan often do. And ultimately, he's gotten stuff done. And I think that's what voters care most about. They want the traffic to flow well the roads to uh, the sidewalks to be safe and clean, etc. And he can make a compelling case for that. And when you add in what he's accomplished with his style uh, and uh, that he's just different, it's all come together for him. And it's coming together uh, and it's peaking at just the right time, right, within a few months before the election. So uh, whether it was the, the online video or the crowdfunding campaign, we see that he's, he really is hitting a stride and peaking at the best time possible. And it's reflected not just in the, in the uh, number of people who watched the video, how much money was raised in, in the crowdfunding, but also in, in all the polling data, which shows that the, the DPP candidate and the KMT candidate are just very far behind. But peaking, the mayor's peaking. That's right. Um, yeah, Ko did go through a rocky period in terms of his public image, which has recovered. Now it's back on point, as it was in 2014 elections. Um, and I think just having this image in which he comes off as the opposite of Ding Shouzhong or uh, Pa Sui Yao, who have tried to become Taipei mayors so many times and not succeeded, and are more traditional, polished politicians that know what they're going to say in front of the camera, but don't often come as off as earnest. Um, that's his benefit. And so being able to link with the people to raise funds that way and not depend on the party machine. Uh, Ko's reputation as an independent is still benefiting even him even now, um, four years later and four years after people first began talking about Ko, this Ko model or Ko consensus that was different from the political mainstream. Now, in some and these efforts uh, to bring in cross-strait issues, most notably from by Pasuyao, uh, you know, this accusation that, that Ko, with his uh, uh, description of cross-strait relations being part of one family, is somehow 
the opposite of what people who care about Taiwan should stand for. And then uh, uh, Ding with with uh, a more traditional support of the 92 consensus and trying to criticize Cliff for that. It, it, it's turning out to be a non-issue that, that this election, again, it, it's not turning on that. And it, it's really turning on uh, the acceptance by the public of, of America's personality. And again, that he's actually accomplished things that benefit the voters and the public. And he's not a politician, of course. Anyway, in some odd election news now, apparently many local governments this week reported having difficulty in recruiting election staff. Now, of course, teachers and civil servants have traditionally made up the core of election day staff over the past several decades. But apparently, according to several local governments, the pension reforms, which have targeted civil servants and teachers... Well, apparently that means they're now refusing to put any effort into monitoring the elections, working in election headquarters and generally just monitoring the day's voting. Now, the Central Election Commission says over 15,000 polling stations will be set up on November the 24th. And in fact, island-wide, they need some 200,000 volunteers. So, Brian, do you think these teachers and civil servants are refusing to go and do the job because their pensions are being cut? It's possible. It's very possible. I think that uh, obviously they are the ones who are affected by pension cuts, and that might actually benefit the KMT because the KMT has leverage on the issue quite strongly. Um, and it'll, it'll just have to be seen, though. I think that if push comes to shove, there will be cam- uh, campaign workers will be found somewhere to to man these polling booths. Students. Yeah, students or just anybody that needs an income. I was actually joking, Brian. <laughs> Ross, what are we going to do with these campaign workers or election well, uh, workers? If they're trying to recruit volunteers and that's unsuccessful, the obvious solution is is to find a budget and pay people to work at, at uh, polling locations as well as tabulating locations. So that there's just going to have to be a, a much bigger budget to uh, cover the election expense. Very interesting point is one of the things that appeared in the media amid the recent cabinet reshuffle and why... Um, former Interior Minister Ye was replaced was concerns that uh, he, he just didn't have the experience to oversee the execution, the mechanism of such a large event. Uh, you know, you mentioned the number of polling centers that are around Taiwan, the number of, of volunteers or employees that will be needed on the day of the election. So this is something that requires an enormous amount of administrative skill. And uh, some of this, or a lot of this, is with the Central Election Commission, but also a lot is with the Ministry of the Interior and agencies they're under. So uh, one of the reasons why maybe Mr. Ye was replaced uh, was this speculation that he didn't have the experience with that, and, and Mr. Shu, the new Minister of the Interior, does. And we see this, this issue uh, you know, being one of the issues, recruitment of staff. Anyway, before we go this week, we haven't had a survey in a while, but while most of the ones we discuss are pretty mundane, a recent poll by the online job bank Yes123, well, it was rather alarming. Now, their survey found that more than 80% of new graduates revealed that they were asked inappropriate questions during one-on-one job interviews. It also found that 20% of respondents said they were sexually harassed during said job interviews. Now, according to the online job bank, it found that 80 
5.6% of its respondents had been asked about their relationship status, their hobbies, plans for marriage or having a family, physical and mental health, star signs and blood type, religion and politics. Now, the young interviewees also said they were subject to personal criticism, mainly directed at their educational background, weight, body shape or physical appearance. And a further 20.4% say that they encountered verbal abuse and discrimination during their job interviews. So, Ross, of course, you've taught classes in human resources from the interviewer's point of view. What do you take away from this poll? Uh, uh, There's still a lot of traditional thinking in Taiwan, uh, in the corporate world, especially uh, as we move from multinational companies into the Taiwan office of a multinational company to local companies, regardless of the size, whether it's a large local company um, or uh, SME uh, or family-owned, that uh, people don't follow the international norms of what's appropriate or inappropriate to ask a job candidate. And uh, they ask questions that, in many cases, the person asking the question feels is entirely appropriate, that it's entirely appropriate to ask about the marital status, to ask uh, star signs or astrological signs, to ask about blood type. Uh, There's a view that uh, these questions are asked because it tells the interviewer or the boss how the person will fit into the team if one believes in these things, um, that the, you know what kind of people you have currently and well, whether, whether this candidate is uh, Aquarian or a Pisces or something else will tell you uh, their ability to work with the existing team. Uh, some of us might believe these things and some probably don't, uh, but it's, it's not uncommon in, in Taiwan. Uh, I was asked these questions when I first came to Taiwan over 20 years ago and was job hunting. Uh, so uh, I could certainly empathize with the respondents to the survey. This uh, uh, really goes to a competitiveness issue, which means uh, candidates will try not to work in these companies. They'll try to work in multinational companies, which would be then to the disadvantage of local companies, or they'll leave. Right? And then that brings up this brain drain issue again. People will go to locations where these questions are not asked. Uh, they're usually not asked in places like Hong Kong or Singapore, uh, or uh, increasingly in Shanghai, where people are more focused on making money, not what your blood type is. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, There's the emphasis in some East Asian countries, the strong corporate cultures that, again, compatibility. How do you fit in this company? The company is thought of as a unit that needs to have harmony, and that's the way that the company uh, is successful. And so, yes, people feel that it is within their right to ask questions about Zodiac or blood type or background and just to see how this person fits the company. Um, And I also think that there's the issue that there's a lot of it, a lot of the way the application process is set up is just geared toward to be very judgmental. You need to have a good photo that you attach to your resume. So even before then, your, your interviewer can decide whether to call you in, just perhaps just leave it on the basis of your appearance without actually taking a look at you on the basis of your abilities. Um, with writing a biography, for example, which is required for a lot of um, job applications, then you have to frame your life as gearing up towards this, and um, sometimes that will lead to the interviewer just judging your life. I think that's unfortunate, um, but it's, it just goes back to corporate culture, in, uh, or just maybe not just corporate culture, just sometimes sometimes um, institutions in Taiwanese society, and that's very difficult to change. Um, oh. I think it's good young people are reacting against it, though. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. 
Good night. And on the telephone by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.